Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. You will also be able to access the references mentioned here. Today's podcast is a talk that I gave myself some years ago in Melbourne entitled It's Not Just Child's Play, Understanding the Meaning of Children's Behaviour. As a child psychotherapist and a clinician who's worked for many years in the mental health um, area, I have great concern about the increasing pathologising of children's behaviour without proper evidence. For children and young people in particular, the meaning of their behaviour is closely linked to their developmental experience. Understanding behaviour as a communication which has meaning helps us to reframe it and avoid blame and recrimination. It also helps us to open up communication between children and parents rather than close it down or take an adversarial approach. We start from the assumption that the child-parent dialogue is the fundamental dialogue of life, creating the potential for mutuality, reciprocity and shared meaning. I hope you enjoy the talk. What I would like to do in my talk today is to try and make some links for you between some of the conceptual and theoretical ideas developed by child psychotherapists, which I am, about children's behaviour and the kinds of experience that we all have as adults, as children, and as adults who were once children. In this way, I would like to show how understanding the meaning of children's behaviour is not something that really only relates to the consulting room or to special situations, or to children who have major difficulties. Rather, it really relates to our everyday life and helps us to sharpen what I would call our everyday observations of children. I would also hope that we can move away from thinking that you have to be a specialist to be able to understand the meaning of a child's behavior. Parents have, of course, observed and understood their children's behavior from time immemorial, and it seems to me that if we can start from this point, as well as use some of the ideas that have been developed within the area of therapeutic work with children, that this could be a good starting point. When I first came to Australia two years ago, I was interested to read a brief opinion poll in one of the national newspapers, which asked the question, when is psychotherapy helpful to children? The responses from the public were quite illuminating. One person thought that child psychotherapy offered an instructional base to help children develop good behavior and morals. Another thought that child psychotherapy might really create a problem and that one had to treat it very cautiously. Another thought that all problems start in the home, while one person thought that child psychotherapy was only beneficial in certain cases. This particular person added, 
I think it's important for some children when they're about 10 and starting to develop. Now, I think that these responses are really perfectly understandable and point to the need for a much greater sharing of information and understanding both about childhood, about child psychotherapy, and about the whole question of human relatedness and human emotion. I was particularly struck by the remark that development only starts at the age of 10. What I hope I'm going to show as this talk progresses is that the really good and exciting news is that child development doesn't start at the age of 10. It starts right from the word go. It starts at birth. In fact, many people would argue that our view of the infant is really formed even before the baby is, form, is born, in the fantasies, in the play, in the exchange that partners have about the baby that is to come. One of the areas that is attracting a lot of interest at the moment in the psychotherapeutic world is the area of research into infancy. One of the best-known researchers in this field, Daniel Stern, has written a book called The First Relationship. In it, he makes an important point. He says... The infant comes into the world bringing formidable capacities to establish human relatedness. Immediately, he is a partner in shaping his first and foremost relationships. The infant's first exposure to the human world consists simply of whatever his mother actually does with her face, voice, body, and hands. The ongoing flow of her acts provides for the infant his emerging experience. I think this is an important quote because it shows us a number of things which is that the infant is not a passive being. He is not waiting for something to happen. He's not just a blank slate on which things are written by his mother, father, relations, and the outside world. Stern makes the point about a partnership between the mother and the baby, and of course we have to talk about both parents' partnership with the baby. And it is this partnership which forms the basis of relatedness and of our capacity to develop good mental health in later life. Another thinker in this area called Donald Winnicott who worked in Britain, first as a paediatrician and later as a child and adult psychoanalyst, has also tried to understand the inner world of the child and the meaning of children's behaviour. He arrived at it in a different way from formal research, since he was a clinician who worked with parents, children and infants with emotional difficulties. The phrase that he used to describe the same process that Daniel Stern is talking about is that the baby looks at the mother and sees himself. And so really what he's saying is that the baby is a partner with his parents, but he's also a very close observer of his parents and scrutinizes them and their expressions very eagerly. And what he sees on their faces and how he sees his parents responding, he will construe as their positive or their negative reactions to him. And that will become his entire world. One of the things that I've been particularly struck by in observing young babies, and indeed observing my own young child, is something that took me by surprise which is what a social repertoire young babies have, which we may underestimate. When I was involved in running a parent support organization in the UK called Exploring Parenthood, we had a parent advice line. And one day, a very anxious young mother phoned and said she had a major problem with her child because her baby wouldn't sleep. The baby was aged something like four months. And when we started to talk a bit more about it, she told me that her mother had strongly advised her that after every feed, the baby needed to be tucked up very firmly, wrapped in a blanket, and then put to sleep. And what she found repeatedly was that her baby protested and didn't want to go to sleep and kept waking up. And it seemed that as we talked a bit more, that her baby, far from having a problem, was really trying very hard to communicate with her mother. And what I tried to suggest to this young mother 
was that the baby so enjoyed her mother's company that the, at the end of the meal, she wasn't always ready for sleep and didn't necessarily want to go to sleep, but that she wanted to be sociable and was really letting her mother know that she wanted to have a conversation with her. This mother was really quite surprised to hear that her baby had a distinct social need. It also indicates for us the very beginning and importance of play. Play, fantasy, and imagination are all a vital part of emotional development. It is something that continues for us throughout life. And here I would like to make the point that the link between our child selves and our adult selves always remains very profound. Perhaps one could say that one of the prerequisites of mental health is to really be able to retain what I would call the child part of ourselves in our adult selves and allow that to be there without fear or shame or too much inhibition. Lying at the heart of what I'm trying to get across in the title, It's Not Just Child's Play, is that there is a paradox in all play, which is that it is both at the same time exciting, playful, funny, diverting, but play can also be very serious all at the same time and provides the opportunity for us as children and as adults to make sense of our experience. If we go back right to the beginning, even before the baby is born, we find both partners, mother particularly, very preoccupied with the idea of the pregnancy, the baby, what he or she may look like. Winnicott, who I mentioned before, has called this thinking time maternal reverie. This reverie is an opportunity to allow for a wide range of ideas and fantasies about the coming baby. Of course, parents are also preoccupied and anxious that something may go wrong with the baby, that the baby may be abnormal in some way. At the same time, they also conjure up fantasies of what the baby will look like, who the baby will take after. Many partners have a special name for the unborn child, who in the minds of the parents has already joined the family. This intensive fantasy, preoccupation and play, is really the work of making sense of a vital and important experience. It enables parents to be able to consider both the potential for joy and possible sorrow in a way which can be facilitating and not too persecutory. It also begins the important work of preparation for the new being who is going to enter their lives. If we stay with the idea of play as work, this also brings us into the whole area of learning and exploration and curiosity and how babies, while engaged in apparently desultory activities, like shaking a rattle or throwing an object down from a high chair over and over again, waiting for it to be picked up, or repeating the same ah sound, are actually laying the foundation for crucial cognitive development. I would just like to add here that this does not mean that one must take a terribly serious attitude to play and push one's young child into all sorts of play activities in order to pursue the possibility of superior intellectual development. Rather, I'm trying to show how cognitive development and emotional development really go hand in hand. The area of childhood, particularly under five, is still one that remains relatively uncharted, despite our recent researches and understanding. Often there is a tendency to think that children don't become quite fully human until they start to speak, or that there's no point in seriously engaging with them and relating with them until then. The other statement that is sometimes made about young children, even when they do start to talk, is they don't know what's going on. Families may be going through all kinds of transitions and turmoils, for example, where divorce is taking place or where there are major upsets in the family. And yet, very often, adults may really omit to try and explain what is happening to a young child and may assume that everything is just passing the child by. They seem to assume 
that because they think the child does not understand everything that is going on, that it therefore won't affect them. What then happens is that parents come along and say, my child has suddenly started wetting the bed, or my child won't eat, or my child won't sleep. So children have a very effective way of letting their parents know they know something is wrong. A child research unit at the University of Colorado in Denver has found that even very young children have the capacity to make sense of quite complex events. Through setting up what they called a narrative play with a child, which might involve, for example, a doll knocking over a jug of water, the researcher would ask the child, what will the doll do now? Will he tell mummy? In these hypothetical play situations, children show a distinct capacity for the development of a moral code and the sense of right and wrong. If we take the time to watch young children at play, we find that it is often characterized by enormous intensity and sometimes a quite rigid attention to detail. For example, if the family has been on holiday or on a journey, the young child or children may find themselves acting out the journey over again, carrying the suitcases around the house, packing all sorts of clothes into them, struggling to get the doll children into line and getting cross if they don't obey. It is also a time when children are very preoccupied with that which is part of themselves. What is me? What is not me? And also what is real? Trying to make sense of whether the frightening person on the television is real or pretend. At times, the line between real and pretend can be quite faint. On one occasion, my three-year-old became very anxious when I first read her the rhyme, Wee Willy Winky. She was particularly concerned about the last few lines, about Wee Willy Winky shouting through the letterbox and coming to the door to check that all the children are asleep by eight o'clock. This leads us to think of the enormous and really quite awe-inspiring developmental task that is at hand, which is the beginning of the capacity to separate out the real from the unreal, the fantasy, the fear, and the night terror. It is also at times like this that play shows the compulsion to repeat and to work through, where this can also have a healing effect of trying to make sense of a difficult experience. For example, we all know of situations where children who have been to hospital and have been through painful medical procedures, once they return home, or even once they come back from the operating theater and are feeling better, have an intense need to act out the very experience that they have just been through so that the pain and the discomfort may be inflicted on the doll. It may sometimes be inflicted on a sibling. Sometimes parents may find this experience disconcerting, but it is an enormously helpful and important part of the working through process and the way in which play in this situation is the means through which the child can move back towards a sense of equilibrium. The other vital task of play is that it helps children, and of course all of us as adults in later life, to negotiate the important boundary between our inner world and our outer world. For children, their toys, their play, and their fantasies, which we can observe in an ex active external way, constitutes the process by which this takes place. I would just like to mention to you another concept which I found very helpful, which is one also used by Donald Winnicott, when he came to try to identify the meaning of the little blanket that many children carry around with them, or the cuddly toy. The term he used for these objects was the transitional object. What he meant by this was that for the child, the blanket or the cuddly toy represents the link that the child has between himself and his parents, between his outside active world, a world he's trying to master, 
but also a world into which he wants to retire or regress. The, uh, the idea of a transitional object suggests that this is really quite an important process for all of us through life, in that, in a sense, we always need some kind of transitional space or transitional experience to enable us to move on to the next phase of our growth or our life. We may, as adults, have versions of the transitional object in our homes. It may be photographs, old clothing, particular objects that we are attached to. Winnicott has written a fascinating book about this called Playing and Reality, and he says about the transitional space that it acts as a safety zone, so to speak, between the inner and the outer world. It also becomes the vehicle through which actual thought, imagination, and play can take place. In later life, he says, negotiating inner and outer reality is part of the ordinary daily process of living as adults. Our understanding of this transitional experience leads us to our capacity for the intense experience that belongs to the arts, to religion, to imaginative living, and to creative scientific work. If we can recognize that play has such an important and creative function, then it also behoves us as adults, as parents, as teachers, as people who are involved in setting up organizational structures for children, to try to be more sensitive and aware of this. But of course, everyday reality so often gets in the way, and particularly the pressures of time, which intrude into this delicate process of fantasy and play in making sense of life. Bruno Bettelheim, in his book, The Good Enough Parent, makes the point that the one command most commonly given to small children today is, come on. We may find the same pressure on time in the way many parents feel an urge to need to keep their children busy, for example, whether at the computer class or at myriad social activities. They may feel anxious about helping their children get on in a competitive world, or they may wish to avoid the dreaded words from the child, mummy, I'm bored. Here I believe that child psychotherapists have an important role to play in helping parents and other professionals to recognize that if children are to become mature adults, they need help to integrate the outer world of their experience and the inner world of their dreams, fantasies, and ideas. Here, boredom, depression, and what Winnicott has called the capacity to be alone all have a place which must be respected as part of the vital and dynamic process of making sense of experience for a child, particularly in our changing world. In staying with this theme of play and fantasy, I would like to move on to include two other areas which are part and parcel of this total mosaic, and these are the areas of sexuality and aggression, both quite difficult areas to negotiate for us as parents, as teachers, as adults observing or being with young children. The intense preoccupation with bodily functions can become quite a trial when one's child for the hundredth time calls out, poo-poo, bum-bum, with triumphant glee. Very often, the experience or observation of aggression, sexuality, the preoccupation with bodily functions, can put us all in touch with the more primitive and uncontained parts of ourselves that we may sometimes want to avoid. But of course, the way in which we are able to understand and help children, particularly young children, to negotiate these developmental milestones, both from an internal point of view as well as from an external point of view, is vital for their integration as healthy individuals in later life. When Freud, in his earliest writings on infantile sexuality, first pointed to the notion that very young children have ways of trying to understand and make sense of their own sexuality and that of the adults around them, the negative reaction to his ideas was extreme. 
Similarly, Melanie Klein, who was one of the pioneers of child psychotherapy, put forward the idea that through play and understanding of the child's communications, that one can gain insight into the earliest configurations of personality, particularly in the pre-verbal period of infancy and the early years. Melanie Klein's most significant contribution was to identify the way in which the interaction between the infant and the mother in all its aspects, positive and negative, produces those states of mind which are the precursors for the way in which the child and indeed the adult perceives the world. Klein's views, like Freud's, were and still are regarded as highly controversial. In her paper, Our Adult World and Its Roots in Infancy, she shows how through intimate observation of children, through play and understanding their communications, one can begin to build up a picture of the total child, that is to say, the inner child as well as the outer child, not just the child who's capable of mastery and development and who is charming and engaging, but also the child who feels envious and aggressive and who may sometimes feel quite depressed. In fact, when it comes to depression, Klein saw this not just as a syndrome to be eliminated, but really as part of a dynamic process which we all go through in different stages at different ways throughout life and the means through which thoughtful integration can occur. So the capacity to be depressed is part of health. At the same time, as a leitmotif running through the struggle to integrate good and bad experience, Klein puts forward the important idea of reparation, which is really akin to a capacity for forgiveness, a coming to terms with, but in a way which is not just to do with resignation, but rather with enabling the child to form a more integrated picture of himself and the world around him, rather than to split himself and others off into the good and the bad. Klein's ideas have been particularly illuminating in furthering our understanding of how emotional deprivation and difficulties at the very earliest stage of infancy and early childhood can affect mental health in later life. Her work has also influenced our understanding of the effects of separation and loss for infants and young children at critical periods of their psychological development. In many cases, many of our best childcare centres, schools and facilities for young children bear testimony in a social sense to the way in which this understanding has filtered right through society. If we take the view that I've been trying to pursue, that all behaviour has meaning and that behaviour and play are ways of making sense of experience, then an understanding of sexuality and aggression has to be accepted as part of the total picture of childhood. The child who is always admonished for being aggressive, for expressing aggressive thoughts or statements, or for being angry with a doll, may grow up feeling that aggression is very dangerous. And as we all know, our capacity for aggression never goes away, it just finds another outlet. This outlet may be more acceptable. Very often, it may be more sly. The expression of aggression, whether in the family or outside world, for a young child, as well as of sexuality, whether this takes the form of masturbation, of exploration, of games about having babies, shaking the baby in mummy's tummy, are all part of the vital work of establishing a sense of identity, of the boundaries of the self, of the limits of the self, and certainly of the limitations that parents are able to set. The way in which we can encompass the total child from the earliest stage has major implications for later development and the problems we face, particularly with escalating violence in adults and the problems of rootlessness among young people. I'm not for a moment suggesting that one should have a laissez-faire attitude to aggression, for example, or that it should be ignored. Rather, I would hope that one could ask the question, what does this act of aggression mean just at this moment? 
Why has my child just hit out at me? Or why is my child a bully at the nursery school or at school? Or the victim of a bully? Some of the answers may be found in the way, for example, we organize services for children. A research project which explored this area was carried out by two Australians, Alastair Bain and Lynn Barnett, who were working at the Tavistock Clinic in London at the time. They carried out an action research project at a daycare centre for children in inner London. While they found a lot of positive things in the course of their research, they also discovered, as they observed children both individually and also in small groups, that at various times during the day, the children were caught up in what they called discontinuities of experience. For example, where children were involved in a particular game or a contact with another child, that because of the overriding routine of the nursery, that experience would be interrupted very abruptly, often leaving the children unable to complete a particular task or finish the game. At times, the cutting off of an activity which led to the sense of discontinuity forced the children either to become more aggressive with each other or with the staff, or more difficult to control, or it had the opposite effect on some children in that they tended to withdraw or isolated themselves from the group. I think that this idea of the discontinuity of experience, particularly for young children, is something that we are all aware of and may contribute to unwittingly as adults to a greater or lesser extent. And so it's not surprising that we get a row or tantrums or difficult behaviour. What is required is that we as adults can negotiate and help the child to negotiate a smoother transition from one state or event to another, and at the same time to be able to value the, the experience that the child is involved in at that particular moment. But of course, with a hurly-burly of life, this is not always possible. Again, I'm not suggesting that children should be preserved and protected from every kind of stress or every kind of challenge. Indeed, helping a child to cope with frustration, to cope with the ending of things, is a very important part of development and helps to give the child a thrust to move on to the next stage of development. The question of transition and how one can help the child move forward also leads me to the whole question of sleep and the very vexed area of sleep problems that so many parents with young children seem to present. If we take the view that all behaviour has meaning, then our task in trying to think about sleep and what a sleep problem might mean does not involve just wanting to stop it at all costs, to divert it, to manage it, or to treat the behaviour as a kind of nuisance. Rather, we might want to speculate with parents what the meaning of the sleep problem has at that particular time. If we go back to one of the first things that I talked about, which is the essential partnership between the child and the parents, we are really talking about an extraordinary empathy and a sensitivity to the other person and a great depth of communication. I tend to regard a sleeping problem as a problem that is really related to the partnership between the child and the parents. And if we want to talk about it as a problem, it's really just as much a problem for the parents as it is for the child. Some parents genuinely have difficulties in setting boundaries or may feel that there is something cruel in putting the child down to sleep and that they want to go on giving, or they need to be needed. In some families, there's a lack of separation or limits between the adults and the children. Sometimes parents have an irrational fear that they feel they cannot communicate to anyone, that the child may die in the night, and subtly give the child messages to actually stay awake. I know of an example of a parent, a woman whose husband was away working in another city, who kept her child of seven awake regularly until she went to bed, and very often they went to bed together. 
While on the surface she bemoaned the fact that he didn't sleep properly, she was clearly giving him some very definite messages that he was in a sense a kind of partner to her while her husband was away and that he had this job to perform. Dillis Dawes, an English psychotherapist, has written a book about the problems of sleep. In it, she says, going to sleep is in itself a transition. Managing the state of change depends partly on the picture, the anticipation of what the new state will be like. Is sleep a place of safety or a place of danger? Each individual has their own, albeit fluctuating, picture of it. The parent's picture has some bearing on their child's ability to fall asleep. Not only is there the problem of achieving the new state of sleep, it is also necessary to manage being in transition. Of course, it is in this area that the child's blanket, toy, what Winnicott calls the transitional object, has such an important part to play. I know of one mother who was very ashamed of the fact that her daughter carried this little blanket around and tried to put a kind of limitation of when she was allowed to use it so that she felt that if the child took the blanket with her when they were out with friends, that this suggested a kind of untidy bit that was tagging along or sticking out that she felt had to be tucked up and made not visible. I would now like to move on to look at some of the specific contributions that child psychotherapists make in working with children who present with emotional difficulties. The approach that I've been using up to now will probably give you the impression that this is a very different approach from focusing simply on external behavior and not looking beneath, so that fundamental to the way in which child psychotherapists work is that the work takes place within what is called a psychodynamic approach, that is, a framework which acknowledges the existence of the unconscious, of an inner world of our dreams and fantasy, and it refers to the play that I've talked about before. It focuses on early development and its effect on later life and helps to understand the tension and interplay between the inner and outer world. A psychodynamic framework also provides a link or bridge between our individual and inner world perceptions, our experiences in the family, the way we relate to the surrounding networks and groups in our community, and the way we try to integrate societal changes and factors which are beyond our immediate control. And so, how are child psychotherapists trained, and what do they do? And how do they differ from all of those other people who also have psych at the front of their professional descriptions? Perhaps the simplest way to proceed is to tell you a little bit about my training and some of the experiences that, experiences that I've had working as a psychotherapist, which may throw some light in the area. I trained as a child psychotherapist at the Tavistock Clinic in London, and an important part of this training was what was called an observational course, which took place over two years before, in fact, we even began to see a child in psychotherapy. Now, that observational course focused very much in the areas that I've just described. It involved a detailed observation of an infant from birth up to two years, who I had to visit once a week and then write up in detail. I also had to visit a young child in a nursery once a week for a year and write that up. Both observations were discussed in a group. In this way, we started off from the foundation that is really rather different from the foundation you might get, for instance, in psychiatry, which is that we are really starting out with a focus not on pathology, but rather on development and on normal everyday development as a basis for our understanding of children who might present with difficulties. Thus, in this observational part of the course, we could study behavior on a continuous basis as it arises. Behavior is taken out of the glass cage and assessed in a dynamic everyday environment. Thus, the child who sees a child psychotherapist is not necessarily diagnosed for a syndrome or an illness. 
he or she is assessed on development in all spheres. Experiences, emotions, and the environment are all taken into account to understand what makes the child think and act as he or she does. After I completed this observational part of the course, I then went on to the clinical program over a period of three years, in which I was able to see three children in intensive psychotherapy. Now, this is an unusual arrangement, and I'm not suggesting that in everyday practice one sees children quite as intensively for psychotherapy. As part of the training, I saw one child under five, one under 12, and an adolescent or young adult. And all of these three people had to be seen no less than three times a week. In some cases, they were seen four times a week. And I'd just like to tell you a little bit about the setting of child psychotherapy. The setting in which child psychotherapy takes place is a simple one. It is best for the room to be as bare as possible, with some tables and chairs, an assortment of toys, and perhaps a paintbrush with an easel. The setting is geared to the child's needs the young, and the young person's needs and psychological comfort. And the idea is that it should be neither too intimidating or too grand. The room and the objects within it, and of course the relationship with the psychotherapist, which I will go into in a moment, are the key elements of the whole process of psychotherapy and are the vehicles to revive experiences, thoughts and feelings, both as they have been experienced in the past and also as they occur in the here and now. Now, one of the hallmarks, if you like, of what child psychotherapy is about is that it works through what we call a transference relationship with the child psychotherapist. This means that the child psychotherapist encourages the child or young person to recreate experiences and transfer them onto the therapist, to relive them in other words. These experiences may be related to being seen as the mother, the father, the teacher, or the friend. What is important to mention, though, is that the child psychotherapist never actually acts as the mother or the teacher or the friend or the father. The vital part is that the child psychotherapist retains a degree of neutrality while at the same time working with the child to unravel the problems for which he or she has been referred and to equip him to cope better in the outside world. In this transference, many experiences and emotions are reenacted, and it is not unusual for the therapist at times to become the butt of very negative and aggressive feelings on the part of the child. This is always a critical part of the therapy and relies on the skill and training of the child psychotherapist to work with the total child within a safe and contained setting. The important thing to note is that the child psychotherapist is not invested in changing the child in order to be a better pupil or to be a nicer child for the parents or an easier child for the parents. So that the child psychotherapist is not concerned with instructing the child as a teacher might or in making judgments about the child's moral behavior. It is an unusual and unique relationship in many ways and also offers the child, even very young children, the opportunity for total confidentiality. This doesn't mean that there's no contact with parents and that they won't have some idea of what is going on in the therapy, but some of the things that are said are in fact not repeated. This thus establishes and facilitates the possibility of trust between the therapist and the child. Psychotherapy with a child takes place for around 40 to 50 minutes on a weekly basis. And the child psychotherapist, by taking the trouble to look, listen, and take seriously the child's experience, helps to create a bridge between the inner life of the child and the world outside. Often, this can be the vital link when it comes to understanding the meaning behind apparently random, difficult, or destructive behavior. So far, I have focused very much on the child and the inner world of the child, but I would also like to keep in mind the vital role that parents play 
and the whole question of parenting as a life's task. Children's behaviour and experience takes place at all times in interaction with parents and family life. Donald Winnicott, who I've mentioned before, has said that the task for parents is to be good enough. That is to say that parents should not set themselves unreachable or idealised goals, but rather that all that children require is that they should have good enough parents. Another thinker in this area, a psychoanalyst called Wilfred Bion, has described the parent-child relationship using the terms the container and the contained. Thus, in order for healthy development to take place, we can think of the mother containing the baby, father containing the mother, the extended family, siblings, grandparents, and the social network, and the community all operating as containers. Certainly, in the, in the examples that I've just shown, I think those containers had really broken down, that whole process had broken down. I have used the term observation several times in talking about how we can understand children's behaviour, and the capacity for observation is also contained in the relationship that we have with our children. How can we develop the kind of active observation of the thrilling journey that our children go through in their day-to-day -day development? This requires, I believe, at its most fundamental level, that we must allow children to teach us how to become parents over time, so that I don't believe that parents are just made at birth. Parents and children each transform the other, and it is through allowing this to happen that real growth takes place. If we are to facilitate the growth and development of children, then it follows that we must, as a society, also facilitate the growth and development of parents. The quality of the social networks, services and supports we create all provide the parameters within which parenting takes place and within, ch within which children develop as individuals and are socialised. It is a delicate emotional ecological structure. When these networks break down or are not sufficiently supportive, then the quality of parenting and family life inevitably suffers. I would like to link this with my final point, which in a sense brings us back to where we started, to the public opinion poll. I would like to pose some different questions to you, which are, should parenting be viewed as a community task? And would it be helpful to broaden our view of parenting, to include all adults, whether or not they have children themselves, to share an interest and responsibility for the next generation? I believe that we sometimes exclude people who are not parents from having a voice or an opinion about how we bring up children. This can contribute to the greater isolation of parents and may also make children more vulnerable to society's apathy. On a practical level, it means that we can all make a contribution, whether we are directly involved with children or not. As visitors to a family, as relatives, in public areas such as shops, supermarkets, on public transport, our greater awareness of children's needs and a recognition of children all helps in a small way, as well as contributes to instating parents. At the same time, our greater recognition and awareness of the child without can contribute to deepening awareness of the child within ourselves and offer us continuing opportunities for play and growth. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy, and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, 
which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.